take your copies, <clears throat> excuse me, of God's word in hand, turning with me once again to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, uh, where we will once again, for the second week in a row, be looking at the story of Philip and his sharing the gospel with the um, Ethiopian eunuch. This is Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Hear now the word of God. <clears throat> now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had gone to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated on his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, <clears throat> like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Astos. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is a reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he write its eternal truths upon all of our hearts. Last week, we began looking at this passage by focusing on two things. First, a part of doctrine, and then secondly, a person, a part of doctrine that we focused on was the doctrine of what was really our conversion, our coming to faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation, for atonement, for the imputation of Jesus's own righteousness. Now, this theology that we see as theology by definition is somewhat of an abstract thing. It's an idea. It's something that you think about. It's something that you, you hear the words of. But theology in the Christian life doesn't just remain theology. It comes entering into our lives. You see, God doesn't just want to save us. He doesn't just want to bring us to saving faith. He orders everything in order to do that. It's not just an idea. We saw this with the Ethiopian eunuch. He had gone to Jerusalem to worship the God that he couldn't worship. Remember, eunuchs were not allowed to go into the temple. He would have had to sit, from, sit on the outsides, on the outer courts. 
He would not have had a, a rabbi, a teacher, and so he was forced to learn the scriptures by himself, and so that's what he's doing in that chariot. Something that he had probably done countless times, reading the scriptures and trying to parse them out and understand them for himself without anyone to guide him. But you see that God this entire time had been working all things together and there on that desert road, God brings him to meet Philip the evangelist who takes that scripture, opens it up to him and explains to him how it testifies to the good news of what Christ Jesus has done. How Christ Jesus had suffered on the eunuch's behalf how he had offered him forgiveness of sins and resurrection from the dead. And the eunuch believes, and he is baptized. But this doesn't just stop at conversion. Today, we have a different doctrine that we're going to uh, think about. That's the doctrine of sanctification. Our doctrine of sanctification is a work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die unto sins and to live unto righteousness. There's, a, there's an obedience aspect to us being sanctified. We were sanctified into the image of Christ. Christ was the law keeper. And so if we were looking more and more like Christ, what would we be doing? Keeping the law more and more. And so what does obedience look like? Well, it looks like obedience to the moral law, the Ten Commandments, summarized by the Lord Jesus Christ, of, of loving the Lord our God with our heart, mind, body, soul, all that we are, and then loving our neighbor as ourselves because they are made in the image of the God who we are to love. But we're not just called to be obedient to the Ten Commandments. We are also called to be obedient to to the call of God, to the call of Christ. Now, here's the thing. Our individual callings might look different. The Ten Commandments are universal. It's not like this side over here gets to obey the first five and this side over here gets to obey the, the, the other five. They're universal in nature. We all obey them, but our callings are different. I'm called to be a pastor. You may not be called to be a pastor. You might be called to be a, a banker, a teacher, a, a pharmacist, a farmer. You might be called to be a father, a mother. You might be called to be single. Our callings will all look different in many different ways. But there are other callings that God places upon our lives that are universal. And that's what I want to draw your attention to today with the life of Philip. The universal callings of the Christian. There are two things that every Christian, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you're from, that we are all called to do. The first one is we are called to serve others. That is something that Philip does. And then the second thing is through our service to others, we offer them Christ. We are called to offer service to others and through that service, we are called to offer Christ. Let's begin by seeing how we are called to serve others, particularly in humility. Since it has been a while since we've been in the book of Acts, I think it might be a good idea for to be reminded of who exactly Philip is. We first come across Philip in, in Acts chapter 6. 
Maybe you remember there was an issue in the church at that time. The church was growing exponentially, and there was a group of Greek-speaking widows who were being overlooked in the, in the distribution of the alms. And so this brings up another problem. Who is going to provide for these widows? Would it be the apostles? Well, the apostles come together and they say, it's not good that we put off the preaching of the gospel and the prayers in order to go and to serve tables. Now, by saying that, they were not saying that the widows were not important. Widows were and are extremely important. They're not just charity cases. They are servants in the kingdom of God. They serve his church. They serve uh, younger wives and mothers and children. They, 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 they help. They feed. They're a valuable part of the community of Christ. They must be provided for, but if the apostles can't do it, who is going to do it? And so they call a meeting, and they call seven men to serve as the first deacons. Philip is one of these seven. The name Philip is Greek in origin, suggesting that Philip would, would have been called a Hellenized, Greek-speaking Jew, which would have made him a good candidate to go and to serve the Greek-speaking widows who were being passed over in the distributions. And we have no reason to believe that he did not excel at this work or to think that he would have been, had any desire to put off this noble calling because that's exactly what it is. It may not seem like much, but taking food to someone in need, helping them with a bill they cannot pay, serving them in that way, that is a high calling for one to have. And this was a high calling that was put on Philip's life. But God had other plans for Philip. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, another of the seven deacons, is stoned to death by the Jewish religious leaders because of his defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This action emboldened the people's hatred against the Christian church, and a great persecution breaks out. And this church is scattered throughout Judea and into Samaria. And Philip was one of these Christians who found himself in the region of Samaria among the Jewish half-bloods. But here we find that it is true what William Cowper wrote in his great hymn, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. He put Philip exactly where he wanted him. The frowning providence of Philip's exile to Samaria was only hiding the smile of God's bringing salvation to the Samaritans. And he uses Philip to accomplish this very thing. And what a testimony this is to the power of God working in weakness. Remember, Philip is not a pastor. Philip is not a, an overseer. He's not, a, he's not an elder. He's not an apostle. He was called to bring food and a little money to poor widows. He was a man who was built for service. But, this, but with this new circumstance came fresh blessings. In Samaria, he performed signs and miracles. He cast out demons. He heals the lame. But the greatest thing he did was proclaim the Christ who died for sins. And that there was life 
and forgiveness to be had by the Samaritans in his name and in his name alone. God brought Philip out of of Jerusalem and gave him great blessings there in Samaria. Crowds were flocking to him, as Luke tells us in uh, in chapter 8, verse 8, that there was much joy in that city because of what Philip had done. Now, judging by human eyes, you might say that Philip had had reached Paterd. He had reached the height of his calling. There is no greater place that he could go than to Samaria. He had great success. He had great comfort. He had fame. The whole city had joy because of the things he had done. And we always hope that our work for Christ will always produce fruit. And it's always nice when it produces immediate fruit. His work had produced immediate fruit. But he didn't judge his work. He didn't judge his calling by the criteria of the world. This past week, the University of Alabama hired a, a new football coach, um, Kalen DeBoer, uh, something like that. DeBoer, is that right? Kalen DeBoer. I, I looked him up a little bit. Um, he's had a kind of meteoric rise to, to fame. He was the head coach at the University of Sioux Falls for a couple of years. And then he became the head coach at Fresno State for a couple of years. And then he became the head coach at Washington for a couple of years, and that's a pretty good job. And then now he's the head coach at the University of, of Alabama. Now I'm going to say something really nice about Alabama. So all you Tennessee fans, don't throw your hymn books at me. Uh, Diane Allen's out there. Y'all don't, don't – you're – Presbyterians don't get up and start running the aisles and screaming roll tide in the tons of angels or anything like that. Um, you Mississippi State people out there, you're cold and dead inside like I am. You don't care. <laughs> but here's what I want to say. For Kellen DeBoer, there's no higher place to go. He's reached the pinnacle of being a head coach in college football. But Philip isn't judging ministry. He's not judging the call of Christ by college football standards. And what that means is, is that sometimes God calling us to a higher calling, a greater calling, is actually him calling us out of comfort and prosperity and calling us into the middle of nowhere. God comes, God through an angel comes to Philip in in chapter 8, verse 26. He says, uh, this is what Luke writes. He says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. The messenger of God comes to Philip and tells him to leave the place where he had such great success in ministry and tells him to go out into the middle of nowhere. Many in our evangelical world have somehow come to the belief that God would never call us to leave a place of comfort and ease and go to a place of difficulty and hardship. I I imagine that the prosperity gospel has a lot to do with this, this idea that God wants you to get out of hardships and not into hardships. Whoever believes that has never studied church history. Do you know how many giants of Christianity have left fame and fortune 
comfort and peace in order that they might go and know Christ better through dying for the sake of Christ. We are never promised that by coming to Christ that we will be removed out of hardships and difficulties. Quite the opposite. The call to come to Christ is a call to come and to die. Our world is, has it all upside down. Our world believes that being worthy, reaching a certain status, somehow means that you get to keep your hands out of the messiness of life. The CEO doesn't take out the trash. The president doesn't cook his own meals. I saw an interview the other day where a man who had played basketball for a number of years with Kobe Bryant for the Los Angeles Lakers um, was talking about how over, I can't remember how many years he had played with them, but, but Kobe Bryant had, had never spoken to him. And then finally, one day, he decided he was going to approach Kobe Bryant, and he was going to start a conversation about just something that was on TV the day before. And he got like two words out of his mouth, and Kobe stopped him, and he said, in order to talk to me, you're going to have to do a lot more than you've done. You don't deserve to talk to me. You're not worthy enough to speak to me. And here's the thing, to tell you, show you how, how far our, our, our culture has fallen, people look at that as being something to be, to be exalted, something to, to strive for. To reach a, a state of life to where you no longer have to talk to people who are beneath you. I'm so high up, I can't possibly stoop down to this person. This is not something that we as Christians should be striving to achieve. This is a sin that we should be striving to put to death. Why? Let me, let me tell you what Christ says about this. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, he says that whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What Christ is saying is that, you are, that if you are not willing to be like Christ and become a servant of others, even those who society deems as being nothing and despicable, then you are worthless. That your life has no value. Philip is an example of a man who takes up his cross and follows Jesus. Philip is a Jew. They thought the Samaritans were far beneath them, and yet he was called by providence to go to Samaria, and he answered the call. And now in our text today, the same thing is happening. He is called to go to an Ethiopian eunuch, thought to be even less than the Samaritans. And what does he do? Does he say he's beneath me? I'm too highly exalted to stoop down that low? No. He picks up his life and he goes to the middle of nowhere so that he can share the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch. The life of Christ is the light of men and men's lives have no worth apart from their reflecting the light of Christ. What are you striving for? What are you trying to accomplish in your life? If it is anything other than the glory of Christ through you serving others in the likeness of Christ, then it has no value. It will become like the cloth that the moth eats and destroys and comes to nothing. It has no eternal value. 
It only drives people away from what matters. And this is our call as Christians to be little Christ, to become like the one who, though he was king, came in order that he might wash sinners' feet, that he might heal them, that he might feed them, that he might speak to them, that he might comfort them, and that he might suffer and even give his life for them. Little Christ, that's what that means. To be, to be, like, be like that. That's the height of your achievement. To be like the one who gave himself for sinners. And this is our call as Christians. To find our worth, not in titles, but in service to those who by the world's accounting are not even worth speaking to. But there is a danger here, and then we mustn't confuse God's call to serve others and to do good for them with the gospel itself. Now, there's a, there was a movement during the 1900s called the, the, the social gospel. And it was, a, it was actually a reaction of more liberal Protestant denominations uh, to the putting off of anything supernatural. And so I don't know if you, if you realize this, but if you just look at just Protestant denominations in the world today, the ARP is, is different, not just because we believe in things like you know, predestination or that we believe in justification by faith alone in Christ alone and stuff like that, but we're actually unique just because we believe that Christ rose from the dead. There are many, many denominations who do not believe that. We are also unique in the fact that we believe that the Bible is a holy, inerrant, and inspired word of God. When I, when I say that after I read the scripture, that's, that, that's, that's major. That is a big deal. And so the question is, if you, if you put that off, this isn't the word of God, or you don't believe in miracles, what in the world does a preacher preach? What in the world good can the, can the church do? It's nothing more than social good. And don't get me wrong, I'm glad that there are people out there who I vehemently disagree with, who I don't believe are, are, are legitimate Christians, who do good things for people. But that is not the gospel. There is no social gospel. There is the gospel. That's what the Apostle Paul told the Galatians. If I or anyone, even an angel from heaven, come to you declaring a gospel other than the one that you have received from us, may he be anathema. May he be accursed. So don't get confused. Our service of others, that is not the gospel. But it is an avenue, a stream through which we might share the gospel. And this is our second point. We are called to offer humble service to others, but through that service, we are always called to offer Christ. Our text today is going to give us two non-negotiables when it comes to how we share Christ. There's a lot of different ways that you can do it, a lot of different situations. I, I, I'm doing it right now through preaching. You can do it through, through, through conversations, even, even through, an, through an email or a tweet or a Facebook post or, or, or something. There's a lot of different ways that you can do that, but there's, there's two things that our text is going to show you that are non-negotiable. First, we must offer the Christ of Scripture. 
we must offer the Christ of Scripture. One of the historical reasons for the onset of the social gospel within the church was the denial of these supernatural aspects of Christianity like I spoke, spoke about just a second ago. The belief that the, the Bible couldn't possibly be the, the inspired word of God. God can't inspire anything because that would be, well, that would be miraculous, and we all know that's a bunch of hogwash. But we proclaim the Christ who is, but, uh, but if we proclaim the, proclaim the Christ who is not the Christ of Scripture, then we proclaim an imaginary Christ. And an imaginary Christ won't do anybody, me or you, any good whatsoever. If he is not the Christ of Scripture, then he is a worthless Christ. Look at how Philip proclaims Christ down in verses 34 and 35. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. He didn't stop there. He started there. He kept on and on and on. Philip knew Christ because he knew the scriptures. How do we know the scriptures? This is, um, uh, we're fresh into a new year. We've made resolutions. We're wanting to lose weight. We're wanting to do more of this. We're wanting to save a little bit more money. Where does, where does, where does the word of God fit into that? Let me, let me encourage you, exhort you to add two, if you haven't already added them, add two other resolutions to it. First of all, prioritize Sundays. Prioritize the church. The word of God is not simply to be read. It is to be preached. You are commanded to come and join together, not just for fellowship, but to sit under the preaching and the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ as he is offered in, your, in, in the word of God. Make ample use of this day. I, I, I understand that things come up in life but just for a change, rather than allowing everything else to be an excuse for missing church, let's try allowing church to be our excuse for missing everything else. We are called to be here. Resolve yourself to be here. And then secondly, resolve, to be, resolve yourself to be steeped in the word of God. There are many Bible reading places. I know we're all busy. Believe me, I understand we're busy. But... Many, there are many Bible through the years or even Bible through every two-year plans that do not require you to read more than a chapter or two of the Bible. And I don't know if you've gone through this, but there are some chapters that are not very long. So you can read a chapter and sit down, and I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a very slow reader. Most chapters in the Bible I can probably get through in about you know, five minutes or so. Steep yourself in the Word of God. This is for your benefit. You must know Christ. How do you know Christ if you don't know the word that he has proclaimed in? He's not going to come and sit next to you in your car on the way to work. You must come to the word, and there you will meet him. Steep yourself in the word of God. The second non-negotiable for how we offer Christ is that we offer him at the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, first of all, let me put this out there. 
Let me make sure that you don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but that, that we share Christ at the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is, does not mean that we get out of sharing Christ with others because we didn't feel like we were being led by the Holy Spirit. If there's one thing you need to know about the Holy Spirit is he is not a feeling. He is a person to be known. And if we know him, we'll also know how he operates in our lives. And when we do this, we will be sensitive to his leading us to share Christ with others, whether we feel like it or not. Turn with me back in your Bibles. We're going to look at this in a little bit of detail. Turn with me back in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Let me wet my whistle. Verses 26 and 27. <clears throat> John chapter 15, verse 26 through 27. This is, um, this is Jesus defining the Spirit's ministry. This is not ontological. It's not speaking of the being of the Spirit. The Spirit is, is one with God. He is as much God as, as the Son. He's much, as much God as the Father. But this is speaking of the operation of the Spirit. Listen to what Jesus says. But when the helper, the spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Notice first what, will, uh, what the helper, the Holy Spirit will do. He will bear witness about Christ to the disciples of Christ. This isn't just speaking of the 12 that are there right there in front of us. This is speaking of us as well. Why is it that you believe? Was it because I or another pastor or another friend convinced you? You believe because the word was brought to you. The spirit attended the word and he worked in you new life. The spirit that gave Christ's life from the dead is the same spirit who gives life to your mortal bodies. You were dead in your sins and dead in your trespasses. You didn't just up and decide, well, I think I'll believe today. The spirit worked belief in your heart. You are a new creation. You did not create yourself. That was the spirit of God working the gospel of Jesus Christ in your hearts. The Spirit bears witness to Christ. The Spirit is a minister of Christ. He is always pointing us to Christ. And he is always pointing us to point others to Christ. He uses us. We are instruments in the Spirit's hands in order that, so that he might glorify Jesus. And then look with me how the Spirit operates once he has brought the disciples to believe. They will then turn around and bear witness about Christ as well. There is instruments being used by the Spirit. And he indwells us. So let me finish by giving you a little practical application on this point. Last week we saw how, that God, how God works providentially in the ordinary and mundane details of his people's life to, to bring them to a saving faith in his Son but he doesn't stop there. He continues to work providentially in our lives so that he, we might be used for his glory. In verse 29, Luke writes, And the Spirit said to Philip, 
go over and join this chariot. Now, it's possible that this could have been an audible voice, voice speaking to his heart, but it's also possible that this was Philip being in tune with the working of the Holy Spirit because he knew the Holy Spirit. He knew that he was possessed by the Holy Spirit, and he knew that wherever he was, no matter what time it was, he was always to be a servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of this, he was sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. He was sensitive to his surroundings. And lo and behold, there's a man in the desert in a chariot. And what is he doing? He's reading Isaiah 53. Of course he is there to share the gospel with this Ethiopian in the middle of nowhere. Why else would God have brought brought him there? And here's the thing. You didn't just show up here today. You were brought here today. Sure, it may not have been in the same way that Philip was. I don't think anybody came here because there was an angel at the foot of your bed this morning and said, you should go to church. But nonetheless, you were called here. You were brought here. You're not here by accident. And when you leave here, you're not, when you walk out that door, you're not leaving here. You are being sent out there. The dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God, is being sent out into the kingdoms, uh, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of the prince of the power of the air, and you are on a mission to conquer that kingdom. And you don't conquer it with sword, you don't conquer it with spear, you conquer it with a simple message. The saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That is your sword. That is your weapon. Paul says in Ephesians 2, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. You weren't, it's not just that you were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. The world has been predestined to give you little oasis, little spots where you can share the good news of Jesus Christ. As I said, no matter where you are, you're never there by accident, and you are never there for no purpose. Be sensitive to it. This means for some people, and that's the thing, going back to the calling, we're all called to different things. Some people are called to just stand up anywhere and just, and just preach, 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 like street preachers. That's not a bad thing. That's good. I'm glad people are called to do that. Maybe you're not called to do that. But there's, like, the whole point of this, there's one thing that is non-negotiable. You are called to share Christ with others. How do, how, do, how do you go about doing that? Really quick, let me tell you something that's been very full practical application, something that I've found to be helpful. I, I know it doesn't seem like it. I am extremely introverted. <laughs> very. Uh, people are surprised to hear that about me. I promise you, I am. I am not very good, especially at initiating contact with people. Let me tell you something that my missions and evangelism professor taught me that has, uh, that has just worked wonders for me personally. He told me, 
there's no absolute rule that is laid down that you have to do your Bible study and your prayer time alone in a closet where no one, where no one can see you. It's a good practice. It's a good thing to add in there, but you don't have to do it every time. He says, just go and, and just be a public Christian and pray that God will put people, unbelievers who are good at meeting other people before you and in your path. And then when that happens, that he will give you the power and that he will give you the stamina to be able to share them, share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And you know what? It works. I promise you. Go out. Next time you have a little devotion time, get up, go to a coffee shop, buy the biggest Bible that you can. I mean, if you could put it on a billboard, do it. And just go and be a public Christian and see who speaks to you. See who God puts in your life. Be open to the leading of the Spirit. Remember that you are indwelt by him, the great witness to Christ. So do not fear. You do not minister alone. You minister with the Spirit. And so share Christ with all of us who God providentially puts in your path to the glory of his name through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that the good news that we have is not to be kept hidden away, but it is also the good news for the world. The world is full of darkness, and we have the blessing of being the bearers of light, the light of men, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered and died for the sake of his people. Father, may his name always be close to us. May always be on our tongues. May we always be eager and looking for opportunities to spread his goodness to those who need him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.